great to be here. I'm going to read now from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the 32nd chapter. I'm reading from the um, ESV, the extremely sound version. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, By my field that is at Anatos, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with what the word of the Lord had said and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anatos from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Maseah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord, of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
the God of Israel. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Well, you know, I shouldn't really have been surprised. Given my track record, it was a sort of bound to happen. You see, uh, my wife and I, Sue and I, after 35 years of living in manses or tied cottages, we are now members of the property-owning class. We have bought, with the help uh, of a friendly local bank manager, a salubrious semi in salubrious sea mills. Yes. And we know how this goes. Yeah. What you do is you hold on to it for a while until it goes up astronomically in price. Then you flog it and you buy a six-bedroom Victorian mansion in Middlesbrough or Salford and spend six months of the year there and six months in the Bahamas. Yeah? Because we all know that property, property for the Brit, that's where the real investors go. Yeah? Well, you see, I borrowed a copy of the Daily... I borrowed, as I often do, I often borrow Mackie's copy of the Daily Mail. And... Uh, <laughs> and what was on the front page? House prices have seen their first sustained drop in the last quarter, falling more than 1% in certain areas, such as London and Bristol. Yeah. I bet it's 3% in C. Mills. And as I said, this is my track record. Before I went into the ministry, um, I was a banker. And I, I suspect that it may have been that the good Lord was not so much trying to bless his church by calling me to the ministry as trying to spare the banking industry yet another crisis by calling me to take holy orders. One, one wishes, actually, of course, he'd call, maybe he had been calling a lot more bankers, but they, they just weren't listening. But I sort of listened. Um, you know, because a kiss of death. I mean, I, I've, I, I, a bit like stamp collecting, I buy a few shares in penny packets. And, um, you know, I bought BP just before their rig in the, in the Gulf of Mexico blew up. Yeah? Do you remember a couple of years ago? I mean, I, I was tempted to fill my boots with Carillion about six months ago, but I just forgot. Not very cheap at the time, for some reason. I can take comfort, though. You know, I may be a really dumb investor, but I'm not as dumb as Jeremiah. Just think what he does. He takes this precious silver and he throws it away on a piece of land that is literally worth nothing. Nothing at all. 
And it's not like he didn't need the money. It could have been used to save his life. I mean, he's shut up, as a reading told us, because of his, his message from the Lord. That they've put him in jail on short rations. Already, almost all the food in the city of Jerusalem is going to the fighting men. And those who aren't soldiers are living on just on scraps because the city's under siege. And the Babylonians aren't letting any food in. There, there must be, there always is in these situations, a bit of food around, uh, hugely inflated prices. So maybe he could have taken that money and bought some food to keep himself alive. Or maybe he could have bribed the guards because he knows what's going to happen. They've told him that when the Babylonians break in, they're going to kill him. So maybe he could have taken the money and used it to bribe the guards to let him go. It's not a huge amount of money. It's probably worth about £2,000. Maybe buy a couple of loaves of bread or just let a blind eye be turned by a guard for a moment. But he just throws it away. Because this land isn't worth anything. It's about three miles outside Jerusalem. And the Babylonian army is squatting on it. And he knows what's going to happen when they win, as they will. Life in Judah, as they've known it, is going to end. They'll kill the fighting men. Many others as well. They'll raise the city to the ground and take its people away. Life as they've known it will end. (laughs) Property prices will see a significant downturn. What a daft thing to do, to invest possibly life-saving resources in something so worthless. Humanly speaking, it's just about the worst investment anyone could make at any time. (laughs) But then he's not speaking humanly, is he? When the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jeremiah, he speaks divine, godly things. And the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him again and given him this word to do this thing, which seems so dumb. But then who really owns that field? 
It's interesting, actually, that the system of land ownership in Israel was that every 50 years, whoever owned the land gave it back to the clan or tribe to whom it belonged. So you never had freehold, all you ever had was leasehold. <laughs> That's what he's buying. The use of the land. Because that land doesn't belong to him, it doesn't belong to any human being, that land belongs to God. As does every bit of land on this planet. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It does look dumb from a human point of view, but seen from the viewpoint of heaven, this is a shrewd investment because this worthless property that he has purchased will, in God's good time, be a prime piece of real estate. And by doing this dumb thing in this city full of fear, in which all the news for many months has been bad news. Jeremiah offers this frightened people a piece of God's good news. Because he's focused on God, not on the evil of the present time, because he knows that the earth is the Lord's and that that enemy army has no right to be there. They're just squatters. And one day they'll go. And houses and land will again be bought and sold in the land of Judah. The good news is that the future does not belong to King Nebuchadnezzar on his imperial throne. The future belongs to God and his people. Jeremiah, in prison, in a city, terrified out of its wits, is the freest person in it. Free from all fear. And so he can take the most valuable things he has and invest them as if, as if the earth were truly the Lord's. And by so doing, he reclaims this piece of land reclaims it for God so this rather odd passage in the Old Testament rather obscure passage is actually talking to us about the great and glorious gospel that the earth is the Lord's and he is reclaiming it 
from the powers of evil that squat on it and which he is evicting. It actually foretells the glorious gospel seen most clearly on the pages of the New Testament. For there we hear, do we not, of a young rabbi who, 600 years after Jeremiah, invested his whole life in another worthless piece of real estate. What was the value of his life? Well, his enemies thought 30 pieces of silver, which, allowing for inflation, probably not far off what Jeremiah gave for his field. Where did he spend his life? Well, he poured it out in a disused quarry just outside the gates of Jerusalem. The quarryman had left a great hump of hard, unusable stone in the middle of the quarry and in its sides the rich had leased places for their tombs from the quarry owners. But on the hump, the hillock in the middle, the latest imperial squatters, the legions of the great and glorious Tiberius, emperor of Rome, had taken over the top for a place of grisly execution. And on that hillock, on the place of the skull, on Golgotha, Jesus poured out his life, his blood, to reclaim it, that hill and the city beyond it, and Judea and Samaria and every piece of land on this planet for its rightful owner, the Lord God. That is for himself, for he too is the one who was and is and is to come. As Abraham Kuyper, great reformed Dutch theologian, gives Calvinism a good name, as he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, not a square inch over which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry, Mine! Not a square inch of your life or mine. Not a square inch of the whole earth that does not belong to Jesus Christ by right of redemption by blood. What he invested, 
He owns. I wanted when uh, Mackie was asking us for evidence of, of stories of where we'd seen God at work to, to speak, but I thought I'd save it for now. Yesterday I drove to Exmouth to see two students of the college. Well, one student, one ex-student. Sam, who uh, three years ago moved his young family, wife Jenna, Malachi, his oldest boy, and Reuben, his youngest, to um, Littleham. Now, anybody know Exmouth? Yeah. Well, you know the reputation of Littleham, don't you? Actually, he moved it to the street where the, the drug dealers used to live. Though they've been evicted, as it happens. And there he and Jenna and their boys live. There they're setting up a, a church, worship on Sunday mornings in a community hall. And there they minister. I, I spent two wonderful hours with them and... Um, we walk around the estate and actually he delivers food parcels to various people so we took those round just amazing, amazing way he has of getting alongside people whose lives are not easy in an area which is regarded by many, I, I believe I'm told as pretty worthless not worth investing much in certainly not much has been invested in it (laughs) didn't see any facilities no doctor's surgery couple of schools didn't see any shops he in the strength of the Lord God serving Jesus and in the power of the spirit is seeking to reclaim that field to buy it back for the one to whom it rightly belongs the world would say he's pretty dumb gave up a good career as a teacher to do it And then after that, I went to a service of commissioning for an ex-student of our college called Andrew, Andrew Saxton, who, during his time with us, discerned that what God was calling him to do was serve the people of Romania, particularly those in Romania of Roma, we'd say gypsy heritage. And so we commissioned Andrew in a church in Exmouth to go to Romania with an organisation called Life to Romania. And he's going to live in a small village near the Ukrainian border with 40 Roma families, many of whom have not got enough to eat. That's where he's going to be investing his life with this marginalised community who many 
in that country regard as pretty worthless. He'll be ministering to their physical and their spiritual needs because a Romanian evangelist has visited them and there is a church there. Pretty dumb investment, the world would say. Those are fields at Anatoth, which God's servants are reclaiming for him with costly investments of time and money and energy, prayer. This is good news. This is good news. This is gospel. <laughs> well, where is where are the fields that look lost, but that we are called in God's strength and relying on His grace? To reclaim. It need not be an actual bit of land. Though it might be a neighborhood, a community we live in. We are called to serve sacrificially, investing our time and our money and energy. But it could be that that forlorn field is a relationship, a person we have been perhaps in conflict with, had huge difficulties with, attempted to say enough is enough, can't be doing here, time to move on. Or it could be a job. One which not giving us anything back, perhaps, or maybe even mired in corruption and bad practices which we seem powerless to do anything against. Yet God calls us to reclaim these forlorn, lost fields. Because there is no inch of human existence over which the Lord God in Jesus Christ does not call out, Mine! I gather you're going to be talking about stewardship schemes in the church over the years. Is that right, Mackie? You weren't misleading me again, were you? No. No. Good. Great. Wonderful. I've done a few stewardship schemes in my time as a pastor. Mm. Yes, I remember pointing out to the chair of the Ways and Means Committee in a church which shall be nameless 
that sitting in the bank, the church had over £100,000, which he thought we should keep for a rainy day. It was raining already. (laughs) It's raining already. And he wanted to do stewardship to encourage the congregation to give more giving. Great, that's all very sensible. All that prudent stuff is wonderful. Yes, we do need it, I understand. But what about investing as a church community in the stuff that looks lost and hopeless? Because it's still his. We may abandon it, but he hasn't. Don't let me you know, change anything, but just, just a thought to bear in mind, perhaps. Yeah? Let me finish by modifying a little bit my confession at the beginning. One investment I made in my life wasn't dumb at all. It's when I offered my life very reluctantly, it has to be said, but half-heartedly, thinking that he might exist seemed more credible than it did when I'd been an atheist for most of my life. I offered my life to Jesus Christ and found, astonishingly, that when I woke up in the morning, he'd taken me up on it. (laughs) And I could pray that the Bible made sense, that God's people were precious in my sight. And then I began to discover that he had invested in me this worthless field and astonishingly had made me fruitful. That wasn't a dumb investment. Maybe on his part, but not what I gave him. That has been repaid more than I could begin to tell you. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry. Mine. Mine. You are his field. And he has poured into you and over you and in you his precious saving blood. Bear fruit. Thank you, Peter, for sharing with us God's truth. Um, As I've been preparing for this year, um, I shared it at the church meeting as well, that... um, keep coming back to the word stewardship and I don't know what God has been talking to you about this morning 
Perhaps there's something that we ought to do on an individual basis, but there is something here that we ought to do corporately. What other fields that God has called us to reclaim? And are we investing our capacity into those, or are we wasting time being distracted with other stuff?